you please stand with me? Uh, we're going to read God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him. And he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for the reliability of your promises to us, for the things that have already come to pass, like the first coming of Jesus as our Savior, paying our debt in full at the cross, and for the things yet to come, like Jesus' return as conquering King, and our confidence that all things will be made right. Thank you for this assurance you have given to us and the hope it gives us to live today in the midst of a broken world. Teach us, encourage us, and motivate us to honor you in response to the preaching of your word by Pastor Jeff and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Vic. Good morning. Good morning, men. I know which ones of you's wives went to the retreat. Just because your children and you look a little more disheveled and exhausted this morning. Don't worry. Your strength will return today. We're continuing in our series called Shepherd, Poet, Fugitive King, The Life of David. If you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be in that chapter primarily today uh, in the 2004 NBA Finals, the heavily favored Los Angeles Lakers with their star-studded lineup. You know who was on the team that year? Kobe Bryant, the second greatest two-guard ever next to Michael Jordan. Shaquille O'Neal, the most dominant big man in the league and probably in NBA history. And they had also hired a couple of Hall of Famers from other championship teams, like Gary Payton from the Seattle Sonics. And also Carl Malone, probably one of the strongest, most powerful scorers in the power forward position ever. They hired him from the Utah Jazz. And so you would think with this star-studded lineup that defeating the Detroit Pistons uh, would be a cakewalk. The, their opponents, the dreadful dis, uh, Detroit Pistons, were seen by many as the underdogs. They, they were seen by many as the team who could not possibly win against this juggernaut. As the series unfolded, something remarkable happened, though. The Pistons, led by their unity and selfless teamwork, began to chip, it, chip away at the aura of invincibility among the Lakers. And as they did that, uh, game after game, they fought tenaciously, leaving no room for doubt, no room for ego, no room for complacency. In the end, the Pistons stunned the basketball world by defeating the Lakers in a series that was supposed to be a cakewalk. It was supposed to be a walk in the park for the Lakers. How did they do it against such a team? Well, on paper, the Lakers should have swept the series, but internal problems and distractions plagued them, namely Kobe Bryant's rape trial, 
that was just what everyone was talking about, including in the locker room. It dominated their conversations in the locker room. And then the beef between Kobe and Shaq, because they were not getting along, so that was being reported in the news every day. And then the stress of having a coach, the great Phil Jackson, one of the most winning coaches in history, who coached Michael Jordan to six championships and coached the Lakers to so many championships, he was told by Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, you won't be coming back next year. He's a lame duck. There's just no reason to win. There's no reason to try. And so their defeat was inevitable. And this led to their defeat at the hands of a much lesser team. And today's text is just such a text. We are coming to a text where the favored team, Israel, who has God in their corner, by the way. They're God's team, quite literally. And they are swiftly routed, suffering a devastating defeat at the hands of a much lesser power, the Philistines, who should have lost the contest. Now, we're going to look today at this story to see where Israel went wrong and to help us see where we often lose the battle before the fight ever begins. Our, our main thought today is that temporary defeats often mask deeper issues, deeper problems that reveal much-needed outcomes, like some much-needed changes and corrections. So beneath a momentary setback can be a profound issue that needs to be addressed in your life or in the church. So our story today reveals four missteps and one consequence. So we're going to talk about four things. We're going to talk about what happens when you have the wrong enemy, what happens when you have the wrong source of truth, what happens when you turn to the wrong solution? And what happens when you give a wrong response? And the final consequence is, we'll, we'll see in the story, the glory of the Lord departs the tabernacle. So number one, let's talk about the wrong enemy. Israel simply had bigger problems than the Philistines. The Philistines were really not their primary problem. Up verse one says, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in uh, battle, encamped at a place called Ebenezer, uh, while the Philistines were camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So this is a devastating loss. The Israelites camped at a place called, it's quite literally called Ha-Eben-Etzer. And that means the strong rock. It means the mighty altar. So we see that Israel has a religious orientation. Everyone does. But their orientation is we're starting from the altar. We're starting from this holy, sacred place. And so we're probably going to win because we're God's people. And it mentions the Philistines. Now, the Philistines have kind of taken the place of the Canaanites in this land as the primary antagonist against Israel. They're mentioned 150 times in First and Second Samuel. So they're very prominent. In fact, their, their influence was so impactful in Israel and so impactful in this region that the Romans later named the region Philistine, and we translate it Palestine. That's what they named it. So that's how much their influence is felt in the area. Have you ever discovered, have you discovered yet, that sometimes the issue before you is not the real issue? Sometimes the apparent problem on the surface, is not the deeper problem. 
Uh, let me just illustrate this. Some of you will really resonate with this being in the nuclear industry. Uh, one of my obsessions of late has been the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. I've been watching a documentary, a couple of documentaries on it and studying about it, reading about it. In 1986, the story that dominated the news cycle was the sudden and catastrophic explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear plant in the former Soviet Union. The problem was that the operators initially thought that they were running a routine safety test to see how the reactors would behave during a, a power outage. So it was a planned power outage. But they were, the operators were unaware that the test performed was going to bring catastrophic consequences, an explosive condition. And so the reactor exploded due to a combination of several things, design flaws, cheap materials, inadequate training, and a culture of secrecy within the Soviet nuclear industry. The Chernobyl disaster serves as a stark reminder of how failing to correct, correctly identify an underlying deeper problem can lead to catastrophic outcomes. And we might be surprised to discover just how often we mis misdiagnose our challenges. We think we have an income problem. We need to make more money. But have we really stopped to think maybe we're just spending too much? Maybe I really have a deeper false belief about money. Or we may discover that the root causes of our chronic illness or poor diet, sedentary living, and gut health. Who knew that having good gut flora could cure your eczema or your psoriasis? Something very deep could cure something very external on the surface. Or we think our kids might be lazy and unmotivated, and highly distractible. I have thought this about my children on occasion. <laughs> and sometimes it's just true. Sometimes they just are that. But then we discover that they might have an underlying learning disability that is holding them back, such as severe ADHD or dyslexia, or they're on the Asperger's spectrum. We think we have a relationship challenge, Relationship challenges, but in reality, the issue might be that we lack the temperament and humility to live in relationship with other people, in a forgiving, humble relationship with others. That might be our problem. You see, if you've ever suddenly discovered that your problem wasn't actually your problem, that the issue potentiating before you wasn't the deeper root cause, then you know what Israel is going through right now in this chapter. And of course, when we work from false assumptions, we make all the wrong decisions. I've never seen anyone who makes all the right decisions who have all the wrong assumptions. Have you? No. If you work from a false assumption, you will make the wrong decision. Israel is misdiagnosing their contest and its outcomes with the Philistines. They don't, listen, they do not have a Philistine problem. This should be a walk in the park. They defeated Egypt with God's help. They don't have a Philistine problem. They got a God problem. And as we've said, you got a God problem, then that's your only problem. If you got a God problem, then you have no more present urgency to address, urgent matter to address in your life. And that's what they have. So what decisions did they make? How did they choose poorly? Number two, they chose the wrong source. They chose to listen to the wrong source. Notice what happens here. Israel listened to the wrong voice. Now, the people are immediately after the defeat. We often do this. This is such human nature that we're seeing in the text here. The people are immediately guilty. 
of misdirected devotion. 1 Samuel 4, 3, it says, When the troops returned to the camp, the elders asked, Why did the Lord defeat us before the Philistines? Let's, let's bring the ark of the Lord, uh, Lord's covenant from Shiloh, and then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. What are they thinking? They're thinking about Joshua. They know the Torah that well. They know about their national stories. The, the priests have taught them. Remember in the battles with Joshua and Moses how the ark would go out before them and, and, and the victory would come to the people. And so they're thinking, that's the problem. But remember verse 1. Go back and read verse 1 very carefully. It says, and Samuel's word came to all of Israel, just like we read at the top of the message. At the end of chapter 3, there is a national revival and renewal happening in Israel from all the way up in Dan, the highest the highest, most northern point of Israel, all the way down to Beersheba, the southernmost point. And so his word is coming to everyone. So, so let's, let's get this straight. They have a spiritual and national renewal movement going on through the prophet Samuel. The word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord resides in his prophecies. They have a man who can and does hear from God. He is God's spokesman. And everyone knows it. And who do they listen to? Themselves. They ask themselves, why did this happen to us? Why did God bring this on us? John chapter 16 is one of the most interesting stories in the New Testament. And I've always been fascinated by it because of the nature of Jesus' correction. Now, what he's telling them there, that's called the farewell discourse. Jesus is saying bye-bye. And he's trying to tell them, listen, it is to your benefit that I go back to the Father. That's to your benefit. Because when I go back to the Father, I'm going to send you the promise of the Father. I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit. And he's going to take up residence in each one of you. You can't imagine how much better this is going to be. And so he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to lift their spirits. He's trying to pump some air in their tires. And they just don't get it. Jesus kind of walks out of the room, maybe goes to the restroom or something. And look what happens in verses 17 through 19. It says, then some of his disciples said to one another, what is he telling us? In a little while, you will not see me again. In a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, what? They said, what is he talking about? In a little while, we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you all asking one another about what I said in a little while you will not see me again. In other words, Jesus is saying, are you asking each other what I meant by what I said? I'm right here, geniuses. Now listen, God has ordained pastors, teachers, and fellow believers in the community of faith to help us to grow in our understanding and knowledge and depth of knowledge in Christ's word. No question about it. You need both. You need good teachers. You need good teachers. But folks, there are pressing issues of the heart that no pastor has a sermon for. There are pressing issues in your life that no Sunday school teacher has a lesson for. And this is why nothing will take the place, you need both, but nothing will take the place of engaging the text for yourself. You can go straight to Jesus. You can read the red letters. You can read Paul and Paul's epistles and Peter's epistles, their letters. You can do that. 
So Israel just became misguided in their pursuit. They could have gone straight to Samuel, straight to the source, the man who hears from God, the man who has God's words. And they could have asked him, why did we lose? Instead, they, what did they do? Where did they look? Within. Who did they listen to? Their feelings. Who did they follow? Their heart. Right? Have you heard this in our culture? Listen, you could hear this on an hour-by-hour hour basis on social media. L just listen to yourself. Follow your heart. And I'm here to tell you. Let me give you some advice. Okay? Here's the application. Do not follow your heart. Follow God's heart. The, the scripture says the heart is deceitful above all else. Think about that statement. Think about how many people would love to deceive you and rob you of everything in your bank account. Think about how many people in the world would love to deceive you and do you wrong. And the Bible says nothing is more deceitful than the heart. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to God's heart. Ask yourself the questions. What does God want in this situation? What would the Lord have me do? Who would the Lord want me to marry? How would the Lord want me to give and serve in the body of Christ? So we see here that Israel simply is listening to the wrong source of truth. What specific shape did their misguided devotion bring? Number three, Israel sought a religious solution to a spiritual problem. Notice in verses three through four, it says, so the people sent men to Shiloh. This is the holy place now. This is where the tabernacle, the temple is. To bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Now, remember we said the Ark of the Covenant is Israel's most sacred object other than the ledger of Moses which we now know as the Pentateuch or the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So those are the two most sacred artifacts in all of Israel. And so they say, go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies. They're ready for war. And they're ready to carry out this religious war who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, now remember who they are. They're corrupt priests. They've been stealing from God, stealing from the people, sleeping around. Constant trysts with the women at the tabernacle entrance. So what do we see here? And, and there with the, they came with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So let me say really quickly a word about religion. Religion isn't inherently bad. I don't care what you've heard. We practice the Christian religion every time we walk into this building. Religion is just the material form and shape that our faith takes in community. That's what religion is. It's just the shape, the form, the material form that our worship takes when we gather in holy convocation, when we gather, gather in holy community. That's what religion is, but their problem is not religion. God has prescribed their religion just like he's prescribed ours to gather around the table and to gather around the tank, right? To baptize people and, and gather around the Lord's Supper. God has prescribed that religion, but what they have, the problem that they have is empty, misguided religion. And in response to a perceived tactical blunder, a religious blunder, they look for a religious solution, not realizing that their real challenge was a blasphemous, lazy, immoral, and arrogant leadership culture in Eli's family. And so the battlefield in the hill country of Israel was not the sole arena or the theater of war in which they fought, and they didn't know that. They did not know that the battlefield in the hill country of, of Israel 
was not the sole theater of war where they were fighting. Let me say uh, a positive word about natural remedies. You ready for this? I, I, I paused there because some of you sent me all kinds of articles when my wife had cancer about how eating broccoli can heal cancer. And I'm here to tell you that would have been a fool's errand. Uh, no offense. But there is something positive to say about natural remedies. We can say that for sure. Improving your physical well-being through diet and exercise can actually positively, is proven that it can positively affect your mood, your energy levels, your health, your depression, all that stuff. And listen, if you've got a natural problem and God has abundantly supplied the world with natural solutions, please do make use of those. All the prayer and the Bible study in the world is not going to solve your gut health. It's not going to solve some of the physical ailments that God has already solved by putting those things in the natural world. He has. But for a truly spiritual problem, a problem of a truly spiritual nature, no amount of stuff, no amount of material things, no amount of religion, no amount of external stuff that you throw at it will really help. Remember what Jesus told Pilate? Pilate was like, are you a king? And he's like, you have said it. He goes, so, so you are a king then? You're, you're a king of a kingdom? And he, and he had to correct Pilate. He goes, you're thinking wrong, right? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would pick up arms, they would arm themselves, and they would fight for me. But as it is, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus did not say my kingdom is not for this world. The kingdom is the sudden inbreaking of God's rule into a, a rebellious world. That's what the kingdom is. And the kingdom is wherever the church is, wherever there is a local church that is a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth because it's a community, it's a place where we all agree to live in submission and surrender to the word of God, to his rule, to his reign. Right? So that's the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is inherently spiritual. It's fundamentally spiritual. That's what Jesus was telling Pilate. You've misunderstood the nature of my kingdom. It's not fundamentally material. It's a thing that is spiritual. And the kingdom goes out into the world wherever the church is, wherever the church is. And our, the spiritual battle that we face is a daily contest for dominance within Will Jesus reign or will I, who is Lord of this life? We face daily the entrenched, embedded temptations that are in our fleshly nature. We, we face the temptations to judge each other without all the information, to choose selfishly, to act unwisely and stupidly, and to walk in darkness. And we are tempted with all that. Why are we tempted with all that? Not because it's out there. Because it's in here. Listen, if you have ever had the misfortune of baking a cake, a delicious chocolate cake, and you accidentally use salt instead of sugar, I don't care how beautiful and perfect and delicious that cake looks, your first bite into it, take it from a man who knows. 
from experience, your first bite into that cake, you will find a trash can to, to evacuate it out of your mouth. You will just, bam, it's gone, it's out. And you can't tear through the cake. Like, you can't go, okay, I'm going to get the salt out of this cake. So start tearing through it, trying to get every little granule of salt out. You can't do that. Because why? Because it's baked in. It's baked into every square inch of that cake. You can't take the salt out. You might as well throw it in the trash can. And listen, that's the way sin is. You can't compartmentalize sin. You can't say, well, I have this area, this one little compartment in my life where sin has touched. No, no. Sin has touched and corrupted every faculty of the human being, every aspect of your human life, your bodily life, your social life, your spiritual life, your emotional life. Sin has that kind of corrupting, corrosive effect, and this is why the heart is deceitful above all things. And so if you have fundamentally a sin problem, if you have sin in the camp, if you have sin in the leadership, if you fundamentally have an area in your life where you're surrendering to that thing, that desire, rather than surrendering to God's word, you don't have a religious problem. You can't throw more religion at it. Listen, a devout exterior can mask the disarray of an unhealthy inner life. A, a, de a devout exterior can mask the disarray of an unhealthy disinterested spiritual life. And you may have shown up for church with all your religious stuff together, curating quite the religious image for other people to see. And you look like a scrumptious, delicious chocolate Pharisee. <laughs> but in reality, your inner life, like the Pharisees, is just in shambles, in sin. The Israelites and their leaders think they have a tactical problem. And, and they're trying to just throw more empty religion at it. Now, if you have the wrong problem, you think the Philistines are your problem and really God is your problem, and you have the wrong source, you're listening to yourself and your inner feelings and, and your inner intuitions rather than listening to the heart of God, and you're applying liberal and copious amounts of the wrong solution to your problem, then inevitably this leads us to a wrong expression in worship. Before Israel's response, which is celebration and confidence. They are confident, and, and the response is celebratory, but it did not match this moment. It does not match what this moment calls for. God's people mistakenly think that the situation calls for festive celebration when what is really called for is a deep and purifying reform in the leadership. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, verse 5 says... All the Israelites raised such a shout that the ground beneath them shook. And then, guess who heard it? The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked each other, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that it was the ark of the Lord uh, had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered the camp, they said. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? They're just all messed up in their thinking. These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So they've got the story wrong too. But at least they know about what happened in Egypt, right? Show some courage, men. Now, now, now here comes the suck it up buttercup moment. Show some courage, men. Pull it together. 
Philistines, otherwise you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the people are so animated at the sight of this box with this golden lid and these cherubim facing each other on the top of the box. They're so animated by the sight of the ark, which is the artifact. That's where their focus is. Not the God behind the ark. Not the God who gave them the ark. They're focused on the artifact going ahead of them that their rowdy shouts scare the Philistines witless. This is, if you want to win a battle or you want to win a, a basketball game or you want to win a boxing match, this is exactly what you hope for. You hope that your opponent will psych themselves out, will be so psyched out by your noise before the game starts, before you enter the arena, that they will defeat themselves. Again, this should be a cakewalk, but they, but they lose. They lose. Look at verses 10 through 11. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the... Now, before they lost 4,000 infantrymen. Now they are losing 30,000 Israelite foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, more importantly. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they died on the same day, just as God had prophesied and told Samuel and the unnamed man of God in chapter 2. And so, this isn't called, what is not called for here is a time of celebration and a time of festive, just confidence that we're going to take this hill. No, that's not what's, what's called for. What's called for is repentance. Now, God has called us to joyous celebration. The Bible says, clap your hands, all ye people, shout to God with the voice of triumph, right? Psalm 47, remember that passage? I can tell you, as a former charismatic and Pentecostal, uh, that was our theme scripture. Our theme scripture was, raise your voice to the Lord, shout to the Lord, celebrate. As a, a former charismatic, I can tell you, in those worship services, we had one speed, and it was hopping. We had one noise level, and it was loud. One disposition, it was celebration. And so when I came to be the senior pastor here many years after I became a recovering charismatic and, and, I, and I came here to be the senior pastor, um, I remember my first Good Friday service. The staff came to me and said, what do you want to do for Good Friday? I said, what is Good Friday? Explain that to me. And they had explained it to me because I never heard of it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I came from a Christian tradition that thought that tradition was evil, that it was actually evil. To, to practice tradition. Tradition was a bad word in my circles. Now, I didn't think that at the time, but I just didn't know what they were talking about. So they said, well, they explained what Good Friday was, and I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. Let's do that. They were like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, let's celebrate. So we did. In this room, we packed this room, with those of you who were here at the time, with round tables. We had a big blowout party. It was a dinner and we had servants coming to the tables, people serving us and waiting on us. We had uh, inspirational music. It was very uplifting. It was very warm. It was very friendly. And afterwards, there were several people who were like, I really like that. That was fun. Are we going to do that again? And I was like, yeah, sure. But afterwards, I heard from my Lutheran and Presby friends <laughs> who made a beeline for me and said, what in the world was that? Like, and, and their question was, that didn't match the moment. Like, 
Good Friday, so here, let me, let, me, let me explain, Pastor Jeff. Good Friday, what we're supposed to be doing on Good Friday is being solemn and frankly somber and frankly thinking about the gravity of our sin and the magnitude of this grace that was offered us on the cross. And they had to educate me. When we hired Daniel Hickenbotham, I was like, man, do that. And he does it so well. If you've not been to our Good Friday services, man, he, he nails it. That team nails it. And, and what did I have to learn from my Lutheran and Presby friends, Presbyterian friends? What did I have to learn? That there's a time in heaven for everything. There is a time in heaven for every expression. And there is a time like Baptism Sunday. Let me tell you, Never, ever in this church are we going to do a solemn, somber baptism service because it it doesn't match. This is a celebration. We're ushering people into the presence of God, and we're here to raise the roof off this place to celebrate new disciples coming to Jesus. But in the same way on Good Friday, we're never doing it my way again because it didn't match. Why doesn't the Israelites' outward show of enthusiasm and confidence. Why doesn't it match? Why doesn't it fit here? Because it, it doesn't because it's out of place. What is called for instead is national repentance, not putting on the garments of praise, but putting on sackcloth and ashes and seeking the Lord and repenting and confession of sin. Let me give you a principle here, very simple application principle. We must never mistake the artifact, the symbol of our worship, for the actual presence of God. Never. <laughs> that was primarily their problem. Their, their, their celebration does not match this moment, and they are focused. They are focused on the symbol of God's presence and not God's actual presence. They say the ark is here, so God must be here. And the hollering ensues. But there is no presence, there's no approval of what they were doing. In fact, severe judgment hovers over the entire account ominously. Never mistake the symbol for the reality. Never confuse the accoutrements of worship with the God whose presence is in our midst. Amen? Okay, good. Number five. Uh, Israel loses their defining characteristic as the glorious presence of God departs dead religion. This is a big point. Now, Phineas' wife, now he is killed in battle, but his wife is pregnant. She's on the verge of giving birth. She's extremely pregnant. And she gives birth and she names the boy Ikavod or Ichabod. We're going to find out what that means in a second, verses 19 through 22. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she had heard the news about the capture of God's ark... And the deaths of her father-in-law, Eli, who in verse 18 falls over, kills over backwards. He's 98 years old. He can't see. He gets word that the ark has been captured, and he falls backward and breaks his neck. So she gets news of her father-in-law's death and, and of her husband. She collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. And she was dying. The woman taking care of her said, don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. Well, the world's not all bad. You have a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, Ichabod, saying, The glory of the Lord has departed Israel. Referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And so the glory has departed from Israel, she said. 
because the ark of God has been captured. So there are two people in this story. When they hear about the ark of God being captured and taken into Philistine territory, into Philistia, they die. They both die as a result of that news, right? So it's not just the family. It's not just the husband. It's not just news of the loss of the battle. They both keel over dead And so why is this? Because of what the ark signifies. It's because of what the ark symbolizes. Why was the loss of the ark such a big deal? The ark was the symbol of their defining characteristic. Their defining characteristic is that they are people of the presence and people of the book. That's their defining characteristic. They have Moses' Torah, his law, his covenant word, and they have the presence of God manifesting in their midst in the tabernacle at Shiloh. They are the people among whom God, the God of the universe, reveals himself and shows up. They're the people of the presence and they're the people of the truth, the people with the one true God in his book. And so it represented God's revelation. You know, the Ark of the Covenant actually contained Moses' Ten Commandments. The Ten, the Big Ten. It contained also his broken staff inside. So it represented God's revelation. It symbolized God's reconciliation. The Ark, the lid was called the Kaparet. And that's where you did Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is what? The Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in, he sacrifices the animals for the people, and he goes in and he takes a whisker in his hands and he flicks blood on the caparet, on the, what's called the mercy seat, that golden lid. And so it's the place where reconciliation, atonement for sins is made. It represented God's revelation, his reconciliation, and also his rule. It's referred to as the mercy seat, but that means also the seat of authority. It's like the bridge on Star Trek Enterprise. This is the place from which the captain rules his ship, rules his realm. And the seat is his seat of authority. So it represents his revelation, it represents his reconciliation with the people, and his rule, his sovereign reign. And it's gone. It's gone, unfortunately. And this is why Paul says this. For the Christian, our symbol, our enduring symbol, is the table. But the table represents really something else. What Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is the word of the cross. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when I was in your midst, I didn't know anything else. I knew no other message than the word of the cross, which means the message of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And why is the cross so important in the Christian church? Because in the same way, it is God's revelation of salvation. Because it tells us about our depravity. And it tells us about God's severity and judgment for sin. And it tells us about the enormity of the gift, the enormous gift that God has given us in the cross, in grace. And the cross is also our symbol of reconciliation. At the cross, men and women are reconciled to God because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And it signifies God's rule. Scholars are agreed. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, when he said, I will be lifted up, 
When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He means he's going to be exalted on the cross. The cross is his coronation. It's the moment in which the world learns who the rightful king of the world is. Understand the cross is everything in the church, the cross and the empty tomb. Eli and Phineas' wife died uh, upon hearing the ark was taken because it symbolized their identity as a people, God's presence and his word and his truth and his reconciliation. And the church's defining characteristic is Jesus' presence in our midst, and our defining symbol is that cross. And so when a church forsakes God's truth and his gospel for well-intentioned pursuits, they're forsaking the cross. And we risk becoming Ichabod. How many churches across the United States have seen a departure of the glory? Because they no longer preach the word. They no longer preach the saving message of reconciliation in Jesus and his cross. And when you show up to those churches, if you go visit your grandma's church, there's eight or 12 uh, gray-haired people left. We have gray-haired people here too, but they're alive and on fire with the resurrection life of Jesus. And they love the gospel and they love the truth. So understand when the cross goes, the gospel goes. And when the gospel goes, it's over. You might as well just sell the building. Because it's not a church anymore. Let me ask you, how do you define yourself today? How are you defined? Are you defined by your various roles, your achievements, the things you've achieved in life, or maybe your hobbies? Maybe that defines you. Or maybe even your relationships. Some of us cannot imagine life beyond our career. Now, some of you imagine that every second of every day. Some of us cannot um, imagine our world without our hobbies, without the things that we enjoy doing. Or we can't imagine life without the relationships that we have. Maybe you can't imagine being the father or mother of, of grown children. You just don't know how to do that. Carrie and I are trying to figure that out right now. How do we become empty nester parents? Maybe you can't fathom your life without all of these things. Eventually, however, I'm going to tell you, life takes all those things away from you. Life, isn't that exciting? Isn't that encouraging? Eventually, life robs us of all of those things. And in the final analysis, in the end of our life, what is left? I hope you would say, it's my relationship with God Almighty through Jesus the Messiah. I hope you would say, what is left of me, what defines me is the fact that I belong to Christ and his presence, his transforming presence has invaded my life. And I believe in his word. I believe in his truth. Let our identity rest solely in what Christ has done for us and who Christ has made us. So let's wrap it up. Bring it together. Maybe some are here today and you realize that all along you just had the wrong problem. You, you thought that your problem was some surfacy thing, a spouse, or boredom, or the need for a new job, or more fastidious, devoted religion. And you've come here today and you've realized, like the Israelites, you just misdiagnosed the problem. That's not your problem. There's a deeper inner spiritual issue going on in you. And so, because of that, you bought all the, all the wrong solutions. You tried it all, divorce, or more intense experiences in leisure, or a better opportunity, or greater religious devotion, and none of that seems to be addressing the core issue because those things aren't the core issue. 
And this has led to ultimately empty religious expression of worship, worship, which has just turned out to be false worship. It just doesn't match what is really truly needed deep in your heart. And now this false worship of a false god has all given Ichabod. The glory is gone. And somehow you know it. And so my message to you this morning, if that's you, is it's time to come home. It's time to come to the cross. It's time to look deep within and ask yourself the question, have my sins been washed clean? Have I been washed in the blood of Jesus? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that we have such great and precious promises. And we thank you for saving us when we could not save ourselves. We thank you for defeating our enemy, for having victor, victory over our enemies when we could not possibly face them on our own. And Lord, today we confess that we have no victory in of ourselves over sin, death, and hell. And we need your crucifixion and resurrection for that. And Lord, we confess to you today that we have no prospects, we have no potential <laughs> in of ourselves, left to ourselves and left to our own devices to meet the challenges that are before us. And so we cast ourselves on your mercy. We throw ourselves on your grace. And we ask that you would walk with us, go with us, empower us, fill us by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.